0: full disclosure i'm robin farzad spooks comedians lapsed whiz kids the guy who explores abandoned malls making peace with the legacy of a volatile parent here with our first best of episode, looking back at some highlights from our year of living and recording COVIDly stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves for over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. We start with the story of Michael Saman, the teenager who was plucked right out of high school to go to work in Silicon Valley. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Michael Saman, Miami product, self-taught software engineer who famously joined Facebook at the age of, what was it, 17? 17, yeah. So tell us about the job interview and the first day and getting flown out with mom to... This billionaire, this, this, <laughs> one of the most covered people in all of American business. What the heck was that like?
1: <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. It, it didn't feel real uh, for the most part. I, I mean, flying out there, my mom was frustrated uh, the whole time because she kept telling me as a kid that when I was going out into the real world, I would have to learn how to do my dishes. I would have to learn how to do my laundry. I would have to do all these things, and here they were giving us a tour of this Disney World-like campus where they give us the food, they do our laundry for us, they they pay for our transportation, and they give us basically everything we ever wanted. And my mom's just like, "What the hell? This isn't fair!" <laughs> you know, now now you're gonna go out there and you're gonna get everything you wanted. Um, and and so really, it was. I mean, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I I think the, the most remarkable thing for me was just how regular. Mark looked, he just looked like he wasn't a billionaire, if that makes any sense. Like, I just, I just, I guess I didn't really know what a billionaire looked like. I, I just knew he was one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so the entire time, I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, he's a billionaire. How does all that money fit in him? Like, I was like, is he gonna explode? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't know. It was like, this doesn't make sense to me. It was, it was really grandiose. But it was also kind of, uh, kind of uh, the opposite of what I expected. You know,
0: there's an there's an element of kind of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory here. You're there with your mother, looking at 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 the Facebook Plex. Yes, and, very you know, amazing much. omelet chefs, and you have your choice of oat milk, almond milk, everything at the coffee machine. But how much <laughs> of this was? I mean, I can imagine on the flight there, you're 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 saying to mom, "Look, I understand. I'm supposed to go to college. I'm understanding that's our way of social mobility, and that's the social." contract in the United States and why you and dad work so hard but this is a guy who went to Harvard and dropped out of Harvard and similarly, yeah. Bill Gates Bill Gates dropped out Michael Dell dropped out of what was the yeah. University of Texas in his dorm room and you are you trying to tell your mom on the way there and especially yes. when you're there mama maybe there's another way Yes yes
1: uh I I mean my mom was worried uh from I think earlier in the year when I told her my plan which was to make this free app that then would get the attention of companies. And then those companies would reach out to me and maybe I would get hired or it would get acquired. And then I wouldn't have to go to college because I remember at the time I would go to my college counselor at my school and my college counselor would tell me your grades are just not there. You have D's and F's and you have really bad grades in your classes, you're just not going to get in. And I remember applying to those schools and getting rejected to every Ivy League school I applied to, I got rejected to everything. And I remember telling my mom, like, look, it's either this or community college, the local community college by uh, by Kendall. Um, So, you know, as soon as I got the email from from Facebook, I told my mom, I was like, Look, don't worry about me, I'm gonna be fine. This is this is it. Like, I'm good. Uh, And she would tell me, Are you sure, Michael? Are you sure? And, and I was like, No, 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 this is this is it, you'll see. And as we start touring the the campus and everything, I think my, it starts settling into my mom, when she sees that right when I when I go into the, you know, the fishbowl is what they call the meeting room that Zuckerberg uh, would meet in. And when I was sitting there with him, and my mom would see through the glass window, I guess she was just kind of standing outside for the 15, 20 minutes or so that we were meeting. And I think at that point, she started to realize, okay, like, yeah, maybe he's gonna be okay. <laughs> like maybe it's gonna be fine. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's kind of how I've always played my life. It's always been a risk, uh, a risk game. I like to say that I'm risk averse, but to be honest, it's it's calculated risk. Uh, you got to think a lot about it, uh, think about every possibility, and then and then take the jump.
0: Full disclosure: you're listening to our first best of episode. Here's a bit of my conversation with Citizen Sleuth Fernanda Mandy. He talked about the dark legend of Bernardo de Torres, the Miami exile who went from CIA infamy and black market riches to dying homeless. In, in the photos of him with some other Bay of Pigs cutout figures, it said they will never find out what happened. And... I'm haunted by the fact that he kind of took this to the grave. He would return calls because, as he said, he was waiting for someone to ask him about his life story, i.e. to pay him for his life story. And that's the shocking thing to me is for years I thought he was in hiding. He was in Chile. He was in... Venezuela or something. He's like, no, buddy. i here uh, uh, Tropical Park. I go to Publix. Other people <laughs> from the mutiny took his photo getting a sub at Publix, right? He injected himself with vitamins. He was a regular at the Ventana at La Careta. He would occasionally, as he did with me once— he walked into, as you know, the epicenter of political intrigue in Miami is Versailles, the Cuban restaurant, and the Van Ventana in front of it where all the, the exiles line up and have cafecitos and talk about the death of Castro and everything. He dared walk in with me. He said he wanted to walk in with me to the back of the restaurant. And the, the nasty stares that we got, it was it was as if a serpent had walked in. And he wanted to do that for a reason. Uh, It was either a pride of place or a a troll thing. And, you know, he wanted to have an interview with me, of course, his back to the rear wall and me kind of being terrified. Are are, are people watching us here? Are spooks? I mean, I'm just a guy writing a book about a hotel of which he's maybe a chapter or two. But
2: there was that machismo to him well into his 70s. Well, you know, Robin, I was on the trail of Bernardo de Torres from the time I was probably 21 years old. So that was 25 years ago. And one of the ways I tried to track him down was through his affiliation with the Bay of Pigs Veterans Association. Uh, Bernardo de Torres was a member of the Bay of Pigs Brigade 2506. That's where his relationship, a lot of people believe, with the CIA commenced in earnest. But explain and one to of the- our
0: listeners, this is the CIA-trained uh, 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 battalion that was uh, defeated by Castro at the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy did not give them cover. They felt betrayed. A lot of these guys were trained in Miami. They were exiles who wanted to get revenge and take back Cuba, and it was a catastrophe for the United States. He was the head of intelligence for them.
2: Well, exactly right, and as you said, this was the um, CIA-conceived plan to try and liberate Cuba from the Castro regime by sending these trained group of Cuban exiles, um, numbering, you know, about 11 or 1,200 To basically invade Cuba And once they got on the beaches And were able to penetrate into the the heart of the country That the population would rise up to join them In a revolutionary defeat of Castro And take back Cuba from Castro And make it a democratic free country again As we know, that never happened And many of those Bay of Pigs veterans Became not only embittered with President Kennedy But but with (coughs) the Democratic Party years later But the Bay of Pigs veterans Those that were a lot that are alive to this day and throughout the decades have maintained just a very close camaraderie. It's the ultimate type of brotherhood, the ultimate type of fraternity. And you could ask any Bay of Pigs veteran about this name, that name or the other name. And they will tell you not only who about that person, they'll tell you about their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, where they grew up in Cuba, where they met in Miami, where they trained together. There's literally almost total knowledge except for one man bernardo de torres and i'll never forget going into the bay of pigs museum one day which is there right off of southwest 8th street in miami where they have all of the photographs and the memorabilia and it's kind of a living historical museum monument to these uh, veterans of the brigade and being in there and speaking to the head of the association at the time and i said hey have you ever heard of bernardo de torres and he says bernardo de torres in spanish isn't Nunca escuchado ese nombre en mi vida. I've I always heard,
0: heard the same response from people. I've never heard that community. name in my life. And it was so too I... out of it was too kind of formulaic. It was like they were reading off of a a, a you know, a bullet point list talking points that you're giving out. Well,
2: exactly. And the punchline to that story is I said, well, then can you do me a favor for a second? Can you follow me? So, I, I escorted the gentleman who I was talking to, who was the former head of the association, who was a veteran himself. I, I asked him to join me, and there were pictures on the wall of the different big, uh, pigs' brigade leadership groups in the early 1960s 61, 62, 63. I said, Yeah, he's that guy standing right next to you there. <laughs> and then he said, Ah, no say No, I don't remember him at all. So, as you said, there was this air of unbelievable, obvious. Uh, mystery. Obfuscation.
0: Obvious obfuscation is what I'm Obvious
2: obfuscation. It. And it was, like you said, Robin, so well, every single brigade member I ever spoke to had the same response. I've no, never heard of that guy.
0: Sticking with Miami, my hometown, full disclosure, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Ricardo Morales Jr. He is the son of the late Ricardo Monkey Morales. If you Google Ricardo Monkey Morales, he was uh, an, a, a notorious informer uh, strategic drug dealer, explosive ex- expert, CIA agent. Uh, he was a, a a man of many mysteries in Miami who was killed in 1982. We're going to get into that. But uh, I want to start uh, this next stretch of conversation with you, Rick, by you sharing this story with me. I think of your dad in the late 70s and early 80s at on one of those rare occasions where he came back into your life. He took you shopping at the Omni Mall in downtown Miami yeah, and you guys oh God, were coming yeah. back from shopping in the parking, in the parking garage. Tell me about it.
3: Yeah. The brand new Omni mall. It was gorgeous back then. Uh, we went shopping, had a great day shopping, headed back to the car and I was out in front of him, of course, running towards the car. And as I got close to the car, he screams at me, don't touch the car. We have to check for a bomb. Are you crazy? And that was my instant awakening to wow this is crazy and we actually did get under the car together and look for a bomb (laughs) like i would know one if i saw one but yeah that was uh
0: that's how it was how do you even have that conversation once you do get into that car like you're a teenager what do you say dad like (laughs) what the heck what do you do dad yeah
3: you know what i think i was in so much shock that uh it just didn't even didn't even register the whole drive home after that the conversation went back to normal and i don't I didn't even tell my mother I didn't tell anybody well I didn't tell everybody anything anyway back then I kept a lot secret
0: but um it was it was just the craziest moment did you just suspect that he was a drug dealer looking to c y a when I was young yes,
3: yes when I was young. Yes, after the airplane bombing where I'm old enough to do research, then I start learning about the CIA, the Congo, the missions in Europe, uh stuff like that.
0: I'm going to take you back to the early to mid 1970s where he decides things are getting really hot in Miami. He's been an informant. He has uh killed people, he has tried, you know, there was one incident in broad daylight in the late 60s, I think in Little Havana daylight where he sprayed 17 rounds. From a, 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 a what's called a grease gun, an automatic weapon, into a fellow exile's face. The guy survived, and he again called that another day at the office. But his legend right now in the Anton Anton. His legend. Yeah. His the
3: guys. The guy's name is Anton. They used to call him Atomigo, uh-huh. Atomic because he couldn't be killed after that. They said.
0: So that's the thing: <laughs> is that every 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 domino table in Little Havana, there'd be legends about your dad wafting, and to take it back. Yeah. To when he nearly had his legs blown off I believe in 1971 or 1972 he uh he got into this habit of always checking for dust streaks on the car when he left the car and he came back whether he was shopping whether he was driving around he wanted to make sure right. that that nobody had tampered with the car in his absence. And another thing is with the uh you know there was an enemy of his um with the whole situation with Eladio Ruiz a person who tried to kill Your father in the early 1970s, there was a famous scene where it was a drive-by shooting. Your father was in his car and he took a slug to the side, you know, a bullet to the side of the head and he was just injured and he knelt down kind of into the floorboard of the car, peeled out the bullet, put it on his dashboard effectively, and then turned on the light and rolled out of the car. And as I wrote in the book, he pursued the would-be assassin. Knocked on his door and yeah, he actually, shot him he in actually the face. He actually took out the dome light. so He actually removed the dome light this is crazy. from inside so, the car. Yeah, so he, so to, he has more so than nine, nine lives at this yeah. point. And this is just illustrating just how hot it had gotten for your dad in Miami.
3: But yeah, that story is is a good story because the guy who was coming to kill him was an informant who was trying to get him to in, inform on my dad. And then my dad found out. And that's how that came up. So he was waiting for them. And they were uh, he saw them from the apartment where he lived downstairs getting ready with their guns. So he let one of them came up. He entered the house. And on the way out, the guy made the mistake of exiting first. And then my dad took him out.
0: Funny man Kyle Grooms on his meteoric rise from deaf Comedy Jam and Chappelle show to his brush with death. Tell me about your big break. When did the big guys come knocking? When was it outside a kind of provincial I-95, 305, 954, 561 to getting called up to New York and LA?
4: You know, I did um well, Def Jam, I did my second year in stand up. Uh my second year doing in 97. I started in 95. I did Def Comedy Jam in 97. But that was it. wasn't a big break. It was just like, "Oh, I can still do this." I was still actually working at Univision. I had to take uh, Vacation days to go shoot Deaf Comedy Jam. But I think in 2001, I did, Jamie Foxx used to have a comedy festival in Atlanta called Laugh-a-Palooza, And that's when I met a New York manager. Like, and they were like, hey, you need to come to New York and hone your craft. And, you know, that's when I was like, okay. So I left Miami and went to New York, you know. And, and yeah, and that's when I learned. Really, how to be a stand-up, because you got to see Jim Norton, Patrice O'Neill, Greg Giraldo, all these guys perform. Colin Quinn, Chris Rock would come through, Dave Chappelle. So it was was the mecca of stand-up. And I I had to get rid of all my hacky Miami comedy and learn to be a a real stand-up comedian.
0: Kyle, how did you make ends meet when you moved to New
4: York? Well, I made ends meet by moving back into my mama's basement. (laughs) no my mother my mother um (laughs) my mother lives in Perth Amboy New Jersey still so uh for the first year or two I stayed with her and I I booked gigs you know I I I, I was off and running my first year in New York you know you could book enough local gigs enough college gigs then I started getting TV sets and getting TV exposure and uh once I, I got uh I got on the Chappelle show maybe my second year in New York. Maybe my first year in New York. And um and moving to New York, you, you work every day. You could be on stage every night. I think I was on stage every night in New York.
0: Kyle Grooms, tell me about the Chappelle show. I'm dying to know what it was like to get the call up because, you know, that thing is a it's it's a cultural totem. I think it debuted what was it, in two thousand three? early 2003, and the stuff is just quoted left and right. I mean, Charlie <laughs> Murphy, the late Charlie Murphy, the yeah. late Rick James. I mean, this stuff is, is uh, it, you know, he's a, he's a legend, and it's amazing that it's already almost two decades ago. But tell me where you were when you got that call and what they said and how excited you were and where they, where they took you out to and what the whole process and the feedback was like.
4: Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the way I got the Chappelle show, Neil Brennan, like I was working at the Boston comedy club in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know. I just thought he was a a new comic, just trying to work out some material, you know? And I was like, yo man, you funny, you know, you should hang in there, you know, keep it up. Your stuff is tight. You know, you, you doing well, you know, you, you, you got it. And he was like, oh yeah, I, I write with Chappelle. I'm his writing partner and the co-creator of Chappelle's show. And you know, then that's, how I got on that. And I knew Dave, but I didn't, you know, I know him, but not like that, just in passing. And I've done a few shows with him. And then they invited me to come in and do some sketches with Dave. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And then they asked me to come and write on the show, start writing, submitting stuff. And then that's when uh, Dave left. He left that week. We were actually shooting the last sketch. I think I was in the last few sketches before he left.
0: You cross pads, you cross pads with Ashley Larry and Charlie Murphy and all these 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 various people who went off to have amazing careers after Chappelle.
4: Yeah, well, I I, I knew Donnell, Ashy Larry before Chappelle's show. Me and him, we was on like the, the urban comedy scene together. Charlie Murphy, I just knew from TV, but I met Charlie once I signed on to the, Well, I, I started going to the set. And then I, I was uh, doing the I'm Rich Tour. It was uh, Donnell, Charlie, Bill Burr, and myself. And then Bill started getting his own thing. So then it was me and Donnell and Charlie. And then it was down to me and Charlie. <laughs> and then, yeah, then Charlie went on and got became a better comedian and went on his own and started having people open for him. But uh, yeah, I, we all kind of know those guys. I already kind of knew those guys before Chappelle's show. I'm learning a lot being a father, man. I, I didn't know girl babies learn to speak before boy babies. Like when I'm in a playground, my daughters are speaking complete sentences and the boys are walking around like a-duh, a-duh, a-duh. <laughs> Bumping their heads on the swing, licking the seesaw. <laughs> and my daughter's like, father, this child is peculiar. Can we go home now, Daddy? <laughs> I want to watch bubble guppies. My daughters, man, they something. They daddy me to death, too. Daddy, 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 which feels good, man. You know, really, feel, you know, it really feels good to have somebody call me daddy, and I'm really their father. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're flashing back to some recent episodes. Here's some of my chat with Seth Lawless, the photojournalist who documents scenes of American abandonment. You're actually joining us from Cleveland, but I'm not trying to say that's synonymous with an abandoned <laughs> orange Julius, but surely Cleveland has gotten, you know, it's, it's knocks and everything. I actually want to ask you about this stuff, uh, growing up because it was, you know, your father worked in it. Was it a Ford factory in Ohio?
5: He did. Yeah. Um, my grandfather as well, um, Mexican immigrant, he came here during the, uh, revolution, um, and got uh, a job at the Ford factory plant up in Detroit. Um, my dad was raised there eventually relocated to cleveland ohio where i was raised
0: so cleveland certainly got its knocks in the 70s and 80s i think mel brooks always uh made fun of it whereas the famous you know the 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 fire in the cuyahoga river uh yeah that's so true am i kind of baiting you to talk about cleveland
5: (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's changed a lot um uh, you know, growing up um, since World War II, we we lost a a, a lot of, of factories, uh, American manufacturing jobs that were shipped overseas. Uh, globalization and it it shifted a lot because um, that resulted in population loss. So you know, you have abandoned schools, abandoned malls, abandoned amusement parks, abandoned factories that line the sky around me as a kid playing. You know. Almost, I remember as a kid, I, I could turn in almost any direction playing outside. And where I was, you could see abandoned factories just crumbling like this apocalyptic landscape around me. So I had a, a fascination from a, from a young age, especially taking little road trips and, and family vacations through other Rust Belt cities, you know, um, that were hit just kind of the same way.
0: May I ask you, how old are you? Um, Forty-two. So like me, malls were a part of your 1980s childhood. I mean, that was the center of social life. I mean, since the sixth grade. I mean, I try to explain it to my kids. They're like, really? I mean, you actually went there? What did you do? Uh, you just walked in and out of stores. There were candy stores. There were music stores, record stores. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you grew up in that crucible?
5: Oh, I did. Yeah, big time. And uh, a, a lot of the malls that I shot, uh, especially here in Ohio, some of my most Viral and famous abandoned mall images were malls that I attended to regularly as a kid. So it was surreal, profound, very moving, very emotional for me to be in some of these malls um, over the years. But yeah, they played an intricate part of my life. As you know, I mean, these these malls at the time were probably one of the largest communal spaces in America at that time. And people went there. They were gigantic chat rooms before the internet ever existed. You know, you'd meet people, you talked talk to people, you window shopped. I, I, I spent so much time at the mall, and I, I can't remember. I spent more time just hanging out there than buying stuff. And I think most people yeah. could relate to that, you know?
0: I see your interview, the Q&A in cleveland.com. They asked you, I think people respond to your photos because they have memories of these places and seem, and to see them now, I mean, and you responded, I'm old enough. I remember Gyauga Lake. I remember Six Flags. I remember going to the mall. I hung out there. These big, grand places that served as pinnacles of the community were not only institutions or places of commerce there were communal spaces where a lot of people went and shared good memories these are very nostalgic places do you recall and i've often asked retail analysts and uh uh you know economists and others what was the tipping point i mean certainly pre internet every town seemed to have the good mall and the dying mall right there was a there was a more expensive place that that jc penny moved to and uh that wasn't as blue collar and maybe had parking that you had to pay for that certainly sounded the death knell for a lot of these older properties that kind of came of age in the seventies
5: no, it's very true and the death of each mall is is different, but uh for the most part and what I've seen in documenting when well, my latest book, abandoned malls of America covers twenty six uh deserted malls across the country from north to south to California to New York and everywhere in between but for for the most part. Um, I noticed a lot of them closed in 2007, 2008, 2009. Well, the housing crisis, right? So that played a role. The economy was hit. The economy was uh, taking a hit. A lot of them were probably already suffering in in ways. A lot of them were in economically depressed areas already, meaning in some instances, which was kind of bizarre for me to to understand, was the entire community was in shatters in, in some of these instances Where neighborhoods are virtually abandoned, the schools, everything else, and you still see a mall thriving. The no anchor store or a Target might have moved in for like a year, and then that couldn't sustain the mall as an anchor. So, um, and then you know, all it takes is something like an economy shift, or um, you know, what we had in two thousand and eight, to really kind of put a nail in the coffin. And that's kind of the trend that I've seen.
0: Seth, when did you first pick up a camera?
5: Um, I started in around two thousand and one. Late two thousand and one, going into two thousand and two, where I actually started photographing for a hobby and a passion of mine.
0: And uh, at at what point, I guess that, that the virality of the internet kind of lend itself to this. This is pre this is pre Twitter, pre Instagram. News outlets were calling you. We started seeing really truly Amazon as a as a phenomenon in the early aughts with Amazon Prime and a lot of this stuff going online. And certainly, as you said, the Great Recession and the real estate meltdown in 07 and 08 certainly sounded the death knell for a lot of these properties.
5: It really did and, and there's three in Ohio that are now Amazon fulfillment centers and a lot of people have been writing me since my book has been released saying that oh the, you know that mall has been raised or now that's an Amazon fulfillment center and it's shipping out that book so you know the irony of that is just uh so far reaching i i think but i, I don't think it's necessarily just Amazon, a lot of people just right go to online. I Believe me, I think that took a big, a big cut. But I think consumer habits change. And I think, you know, after 2001, we had 9-11. I don't know if you, if you remember this. I, I, I definitely remember this, that malls were a soft target for Al-Qaeda. So people were afraid to go to malls, especially after that time. So they started designing, deconstructing the mall, if you will. They had open malls with open courtyards, and people didn't want to shop under energy-wasting fluorescent lighting. They wanted natural lighting. So the consumer shifted, and so I think, you know, we catered. To, the malls kind of changed into that. So there, it's kind of a twofold system, I think, while, while malls pretty much have failed and probably will in a foreseeable future.
0: I caught up with Shelly Togelski, the mindfulness mogul shaped out of immigrant neuroses and quarter-life corporate burnout. So fascinating how, you know, the shadow and persona of everything works because to me, the memory of you, you were smaller, you were you were indefatigable, you were constant energy, you were uh, life of the conversation, popular in school, supremely motivated to the point that I think by middle school you we knew That you were destined to not fully complete high school and jump into University of Miami and again, complete the medical programs as a six year undergrad, right? Here we are, you know, 40 years or so after I met you. And uh, yes, I knew you were born in Israel. You came with your family to Brooklyn at age two. I did not know that you were kidnapped while waiting for your mother at the Brooklyn DMV office. And I further didn't know about your Iraqi ancestry and and the peasantry and that we share, you know, something in common in ancient Babylonia. But first, unpack the DMV memory for me.
6: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, you know, I don't remember it firsthand. I remember it as it was told to me growing up. And it was one of these stories that was always shared around, um You know dinner tables and Hmm. um like a shock factor you know my my mother would just gently insert into like a conversation when people would ask about you know how we got here and what have you she would just say oh and my daughter was kidnapped when she was two and it, it you know would create this like big pause of like what that's so crazy um, so basically, yeah, I was, I, listen, I was a very gregarious child. I know that's very hard to believe that I was outgoing and that I liked talking to people. Um, and I, um, you know, would have this habit as well of going up to just strangers and start talking to them. And And I was incredibly interested in people. Uh, and I still am to this day. And so I would imagine that I probably, you know interacted with somebody in the waiting room at the DMV, and then when my mother was called in to get her eye exam and was obviously preoccupied with covering one eye uh, and trying very hard as a woman who did not speak English and was trying to, you know, focus on the test that she had to pass which i'm sure gave her a lot of anxiety and agita i either wandered off or i was you know taken uh, but my mother as soon as she you know completed the test turned around and saw that i was gone i was completely missing and nowhere to be found in the dmv and there was a good samaritan that day that sat in the waiting room that remembered me from her brief interaction with my mother and and myself while we were sitting waiting for my mom to be called. And she saw me being carried off by a couple. uh, And she immediately knew that she had a choice to make. She had to make a choice between either running in to try to find my mother Mm. or running after this couple knowing that there was something wrong because obviously had not arrived with them. And she chose the latter. She ran after this couple, didn't think twice about the potential danger to herself and followed them for city blocks into a housing complex in Brooklyn uh, off of Ocean Parkway and saw them entering into a building and then proceeded to run back to the DMV to tell my mom, like, I know where your daughter is, follow me. and. Again, there, my mother did not speak English well at all, and so they were sort of, as my mom describes it, you know, speaking in charades. Um, and this woman finally just was like done with trying to explain to my mother what was going on, who at that point was completely broken down in, in, in grief and in fear. And my, she just grabbed my mother's arm and ran all these city blocks with her into this complex being followed by at this point, the Brooklyn or the, the New York PD, which was, which was called to the scene of the crime. And, um and it took like a good, you know, few hours for them to make it through. They had to lock down the building and go floor to floor to floor, knocking on every single door, looking in all the corridors and all the stairwells to see if they could find me. And uh, you know, second to last floor on this very tall building, uh, when the elevator's door opened to that second to last floor, I was sitting there or I was actually being carried uh, by this woman and I was as happy as happy could be. I was totally fine. I was not, I had no awareness that I was in any danger. I was smiling and laughing and of course, happy to see my mom but couldn't understand why my mom was crying. And so I jumped into my mother's arms. I asked her, why are you crying, mom? And she just you know, completely lost it from the joy of the reunification. And it's so interesting because the way I tell it in the book is that for so many years, I honestly thought this was a story about me or a story about my mom's angst. But really, you know, as I started to think about the Good Samaritan who kind of gets lost in the story as it is told, at least by my family, I was just fascinated by that moment of agency that she had, that she was able to, in a split second, make a decision to, again, risk her life or to do the right thing on behalf of somebody that she didn't even know. And I was fascinated by that. And that really became you know, a part of my life that began to inform a lot of the work that I would find myself immersed in for decades to come.
0: Comedian and actress Tara Grammy regaled us with stories of struggle and hustle en route to her big Hollywood breakout. But yes, and I digress as I normally do. Tell me when you left Iran and what your initial memory was in coming out of of that country.
7: Um, I left Iran a bunch of times when I was a kid. I had kind of a all over the place kind of childhood where first we moved to the U.S. when I was two, but then my dad couldn't get a visa. So we moved back to Iran and then we moved to Canada when I was about six. My mom and I, because my parents got a divorce. So um, I was kind of all over the place when I was a kid between Iran, the U.S. and Canada. But we finally, finally left uh, Iran when I was six and um, moved to Toronto which is yeah a very heavily immigrant culture there's a lot of immigrants in toronto and i was in class with mostly kids from hong kong and i wanted to be just like them so i would make my mom take me to the uh asian supermarket and buy (laughs) asian snacks um because that's uh what i thought was normal and my mom was like i brought you to canada what's going on why do you think you're from hong kong um, also, the cold winter, I remember my mom bundling me up a bunch because it was so cold in Toronto.
0: When did you make people laugh officially? I remember my father, you know, there's a, he whenever we'd have somebody over, he would have, uh, you know, pour a beer and give me a tiny drop of the beer in another cup. And I, I'd share this vulgarity when I toasted the person, kind of as a five or six-year-old. And I got such a rise out of the room, and my mother was so mortified that I continued to want to think that I was funny for the rest of my life. And here I am today trying to be funny with you. But when did you have that epiphany?
7: Um, it was a little bit later in life. I think we moved to Germany when I was about 13. And I went to a British private school, which was so different from the Canadian public school I was in in Toronto. And my way of making friends was kind of utilizing the fact that I'm completely shameless and will do anything to get a laugh. Um And that's how I made friends, just by being silly.
0: Well, I mean, I have to ask without Mm -hmm. being your psychotherapist, was it to conceal? volatility or turmoil at home? Was it to conceal another identity? Or did this just kind of come to you naturally? I
7: think it came to me naturally. My, my dad is super funny. Um, very much a people person. My mom's really funny too. Um, I think it was more of a, it, it. There's probably some psychological thing behind it. I'm sure there is. Um, but I think it was more just because I wanted to make friends. And uh, everyone loves uh, the funny guy, right? You know, mm. I just wanted to be loved.
0: You can give me a you can give me a copay for this after we're done. <laughs> but go ahead.
7: Yeah, I I really think it was more about just wanting to fit in and finding comedy as a way, like as the great connector between between people. You know, I went to another international school, people from all over the world, and uh, it was kind of laughing together and making jokes and being silly was how I made friends.
0: Was there stigma attached to being? iranian in canada at the very least i mean i know i felt it in the united states where it always be called a you know terrorist or a camel jockey or saddam you know into the 90s or something like that iran was kind of this catch basin for everything that was uh bizarre and menacing and exotic and and terrorist oriented out of the middle east
7: i never had that experience growing up in canada um toronto is a very multicultural city everyone is from somewhere else and Racism, I think, is more... It's more under cover. (laughs) There's a terrible way to say it, but it's it's just... It's less blatant than it is here in the U.S. There are so many different cultures, so many different types of people. I never felt like an outsider because everybody was an outsider. I felt different in that, you know, I looked different from the kids in my class because there weren't that many Iranian immigrants at the time that we moved Mm. to Canada. But uh, I never really felt... Like the other the way that Iranians in America did that I've heard stories about here.
0: Yeah, I mean if you look at the band Rush, which I conflate with Toronto and Canada, right? You have a, a European guitarist, you have the son of Holocaust survivors in, in Getty Leah and everything. and I don't think people appreciate the, the Chinese population in Toronto and how much of a of a diaspora that kind of built that city at the very least.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Toronto was definitely built by immigrants.
0: New York Times culture reporter and Robin Williams biographer Dave Itzkoff discussed breaking out on his own after living in the shadow of a cocaine-addicted father. Dave, you write about uh, maybe kind of grasping for some element of normalcy when uh, your dad moved the family to Rockland County, suburban you know, New York, back in 1991. Right. I'm going to read from your essay in New York Magazine, the excerpt from your book. Though this transition unfortunately occurred between my freshman and sophomore years of high school... The uncertainty that nibbled away at my stomach lining in the first summer of exile was tempered with relief. The farther we were from New York, I figured, the more difficult it would be for my father to feed his habit. Indeed, after we moved, he began to enjoy a sobriety as fragile and as unfamiliar as a suburban silence that now enveloped us. This lasted until the following spring, after months of struggling to make friends at my new school, I had finally been invited to the birthday party of a social studies classmate, a nice Jewish girl with straight auburn hair and a bump in her nose, who was probably just taking pity on me, but whom I thought I had a genuine shot at. All I needed was a ride to that party, and everything would fall into place. While I spent that afternoon staring at myself in the mirror and brushing my hair until it was just right, my father was behind his bedroom door, sometimes watching TV and sometimes talking on the phone. But when it was time for him to take me to the party, he was snoring loudly, In my excitement, I hurriedly roused him out of bed into his pants and into the car, and though his breathing was heavy and his waking movements were comically sluggish, I never thought to wonder why he had been home asleep so early on a weekday. But there was something unmistakably wrong about the way he was driving, the way he'd let the car coast too far to one side of the lane before jerking it back on course, the entire vehicle shuddering like a horse that just took a spur in its side. Then, as he maneuvered off a quiet access road and onto a two-way highway, he turned so wide that we ended up in the oncoming lane of traffic. We skidded to a stop, parked backward on the shoulder. I could now see that my father's eyes were barely open and his hands were trembling on the steering wheel. Are you high? I demanded. Deep in his narcotic fog, he was sufficiently alert to know he should be embarrassed. Yes, he stuttered. Dave, I don't understand how you presumably were successful in high school and you put it together and you you had the day job of being a functional kind of awkward kid in a in a new school and applying to great colleges and getting accepted how did you keep it together
8: you know i i can i don't I, I don't entirely i don't have any other experience to compare it to you know like i can't say how i mean how, you know i'm trying i'm trying to think of how i can i can put this that you know i'm sure people react to Stressful situations in in all kinds of ways, and and different people grow up with different kinds of of traumas, and and some people obviously the effect that it has on them is like extremely outward and visible, and you know they push back against it, they rebel against it, they become mm. kind of dysfunctional, outwardly mm. dysfunctional in their own way, and and, and honestly, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I imagine others too that like. One way that people react to it is just to kind of like put your head down and just like throw yourself even harder into the things that you can, you feel you can control, the things you've already been told that you're good at, places where you've gotten encouragement like high school academics. If you had, like I did, teachers who, while they didn't know what was going on in my life, people who just said, hey, you're a good student, You, you have potential then you think, well, okay, I will just try to put all my energy into pleasing those people. I don't have a father who I can get that kind of you know, validation from, so let me do whatever these other people are telling me that seems to elicit it from them you know, that was, that was a big motivator. I'm sure I, I took pleasure, honestly, I know it's weird, but I took pleasure in my own, uh, schoolwork at the time. So at least it was like something to feel good about and enjoy. There wasn't a lot else, uh, you know, just uh, at, at the time, but uh, you know, like I, I I don't know, I don't know if that's, if that makes any sense, but that's just, well, like, when, when, when did reacted. you find
0: solace? When, when did you find solace in, in letters in writing and reading?
8: Probably from a very, very early age that I've been told that, you know, I started reading pretty young, like age, uh, three or four. And, I, you know, I, I definitely spent a lot of time alone as, as a young, like latchkey kid and just was allowed to like, You know, we had a pretty big book collection uh, when I was growing up and I was just allowed to like sit in front of our collection of books and and sift through them and and read. So there was that. You know, my parents have memories of me like sitting at the breakfast table and like, you know, you get like a cereal box with like the nutritional content listings on the side and I would just like sit and pour over that and learn to read all the different like names of vitamins and and minerals. So... Mm. Just from that that age, I guess. Uh, but it it was a long time before I understood that like, you know, writing and, and uh journalism were a career. I didn't it wasn't anything that I contemplated or, or you know, as a way to uh you know, make my living or to just something something that I could do for the rest of my life, really.
0: Right. You know, you write about your, uh, your start at Princeton, which was 90 miles away from home. You said, I, meanwhile, was pursuing my own betterment with the same single-minded intensity I'd seen my father exhibit in his prime. Some portions of this education occurred in lecture halls and libraries, while others took place in the private tap rooms and semi-secret back rooms of an Ivy League campus where pot was plentiful. And cocaine wasn't hard to come by if you knew where to look for it. It would be too convenient to say my father's addiction made me more curious to try drugs and a lie to say I worried that I might have an addictive personality of my own. Drugs were simply a part of the college experience, as integral and as inevitable as final exams. And for once, I wanted to know what it felt like to be a normal, relaxed, acceptably disobedient kid. <laughs> I'm not going to superimpose myself on you. I was a, you know, an immigrant kid from a big Miami public high school flung into that environment. You're someone with a tremendous amount of trauma. There seemed to have been an equilibrium with your father and a lull of sobriety when you went off to Princeton. How did you keep it at bay? Would you limit interactions? Would phone calls rile you up? This is this is where I'm trying to Yeah. I'm trying to understand how you juggled both worlds.
8: You mean in terms of like the 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 home life that I left behind. That's right. Well, you know, I obviously there I mean there were a lot of reasons why I certainly, you know, I couldn't I couldn't like you know, cut my family off entirely. I I mean, practical reasons, financial reasons, but also emotional reasons that I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily looking to exercise them from my life entirely. I still wanted very much to have a relationship with them and to try to find some sense of, uh, you know, I mean, you said the equilibrium or just, you know, a, a feeling of, really connecting and belonging with them in a way that I hadn't been able to when I was younger, but that there were still further opportunities when I got older.
0: Our last stop on this Look Back episode, one reporter's vision and plan for the transformation of public media. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Celeste Headley, radio journalist, author, public speaker, co-host of the weekly PBS series Retro Report. Um we used to tag team on the late great show Tell Me More I believe it came to its end its premature end in 2013 Celeste uh you and I have always kid you are you are so multi-chromatic and multi-talented in addition to singing playing instruments doing radio doing TV speeches books uh you I I guess did I read that your maternal grandma was African American your maternal grandma was of Russian Jewish descent but that doesn't even begin to Describe your composition.
9: Right. My maternal grandfather was of African-American with a little bit of Native American thrown in, among other things. Um, and my maternal grandmother was Russian Jewish. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of other stuff thrown in. I, I am uh, I am the melting pot <laughs> that they claimed America was quite some time ago. And, you know, interestingly enough, it's it's caused us to it's caused a lot of people to feel like. Because I am racially ambiguous, at least when you look at me, they think that it's their right to define what my race is, which is surprising. (laughs) Um, And deciding whether or not I can call myself one thing or another thing. I mean, I identify as Black and Jewish because those were the people that raised me. And why are they the people that raised me? Because when, you know, when the Civil War ended, the Black children of a white plantation owner were not going to end up with the white family. Right. So it's always been the African-Americans in my family and in particular, my great my Jewish grandmother that ended up taking us in. But in terms of journalism, it causes a problem, right? Because uh, I'm biased in all kinds of ways, supposedly. Um, I'm certainly biased on issues of gender because I'm female. Um, I'm biased on issues of of. Uh, the Jews. I'm biased on issues of blacks. I'm I'm probably liberal because, of course, someone can't be black and Jewish and not be liberal. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about in our open letter was to get rid of this idea of objectivity, because so far, the measure of objectivity has been white and male. If you're white and male, then you can report on anything. Being white and male doesn't make you automatically biased. But being the member of a of a of a different demographic group, especially one that has been oppressed in in past years and current years, that makes you biased. Well,
0: you, know, you note that the first public report on the on public radio in nineteen seventy eight decades ago said that quote, public radio has been asleep at the transmitter close quote on issues of race. And we see an audit seemingly every year from NPR on staff composition and uh, poll results and everything saying that yet again, we've fallen way short and i wonder about kind of is almost this self-flagellation of of auditing but the action has never truly followed up there are very small things like unpaid internships and other elements that kind of perpetuate you know the status quo to to be someone who takes a public broadcasting internship you kind of have to be of means right you have to uh, maybe go to a different city uh, take on a side job uh it's it's a very difficult thing to do and in the past it was just assumed because we are equal opportunity employers that you know we're we're doing our job and yet every year end when that audit comes out there's this week or so of self-flagellation and then the status quo persists
9: yeah over and over and if you look at hiring decisions who is trusted to host shows who is is trusted to to be retained who's trusted to become a correspondent i mean those who are are not um you know steeped in journalism, may not realize that there are ranks when it comes to reporters. <laughs> There's an assistant producer, which is sort of like your entry level, and then you can move up to producer, you can move into reporter one, reporter two eventually you could become a correspondent, which is you know the highest level of uh trust and expertise at uh, in public radio at least um all of those decisions automatically defer to white men. Now I I should you know this is how we end up with these as you you know talking about these reports every year that just show and you know it's funny if you look at the headlines they're like wow diversity really hasn't gotten that much better or it goes the other way and you'll get this sort of um overblown bragging. Mm. They'll say look diversity numbers have gone up and then you'll you'll read through the report and realize they've gone up by like 2%. <laughs> or- 3%, um which is just not something to brag about.
0: Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly. You can listen to every episode in its entirety on the Trusty NPR One app, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to friends and family. Special thanks to our partners in LP Radio. WERA 96.7 FM up in Arlington, Virginia, and in parts of Washington, D.C., there's WPVM 103.7 in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQLP 104.1 FM out in Ventura, California. Holler if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.